I'm Dave Champion, and this is a tutorial on natural herd immunity, concerning which there is a dearth of information on the internet. Uh, you can search long and far for herd immunity and find virtually no information on natural herd immunity. Uh, as an example, I went on YouTube intentionally to see where they were at on this. And, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but it appears YouTube has scrubbed every single video or uh, lowered it in the rankings so far that you cannot find it that discusses natural herd immunity. In that context, that there's just this complete dearth of information, I wanted to present a tutorial discussing the anthropology, the physiology, and so forth of natural herd immunity. Now, before I get started, I want to acknowledge nothing in this tutorial is going to change the opinions of hardcore natural herd immunity deniers because their denial has nothing to do with science. It's all sort of like a personal emotional construct thing. If they were into facts or science, they would know that herd immunity was recognized as a naturally occurring phenomenon as far back as the 1930s, and it actually got its name in 1923. Like many of the scientific issues I've discussed with you over the last five or six months, there's a lot of complexity to this, and I'm going to do here in this tutorial what I've done on other subjects in previous videos, and that is I'm going to give you the key elements that are important for you to understand the issue without getting into all the complex minutiae, which would make this video considerably longer than it's already going to be. Leaving off the words naturally occurring, what is herd immunity? And for that, I want to reference a fairly decent description that appears on Wikipedia. Herd immunity is a form of indirect protection from infectious disease that occurs when a sufficient percentage of a population has become immune to an infection, whether through vaccination or previous infections, thereby reducing the likelihood or infection for individuals who lack immunity. Immune individuals are unlikely to contribute to disease transmission, disrupting chains of infection, which stops or slows the spread of a disease. The greater the proportion of immune individuals in a community, the smaller the probability that non-immune individuals will come into contact with the infectious individual. As I said, a pretty good, decent definition of herd immunity. The only thing it leaves out is the component of death as part of the herd immunity equation, the natural herd immunity equation, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. From here, I'm going to address naturally occurring herd immunity in three categories. Anthropology how herd immunity works, and what we can see with our own eyes today. Disease anthropology, how communicable diseases affected ancient man. Oftentimes ancient man is depicted like this, sort of a man alone kind of thing, which is not remotely accurate. Uh, these depictions are far more accurate because man was communal in nature. The same impulses we have today for a mate, for procreation, for caring for our children, for wanting to engage in community, those sentiments were with man ever since there was man. That's not just here suddenly in the 21st century we have those instincts. Those have always been man's instincts. In other words, whether it's from anthropology, archaeology, or common sense, man has always lived in a communal setting. You could find man in those communal settings where there was 
abundant fresh water, and abundant game. If those two things were there, you can bet whatever humans were in that region were in a community there. And of course, man understood from, again, the time that there was man, that living communally with numbers helped defend the community against maybe other communities that were aggressive. So understanding that since the beginning of time, man has always lived communally in communities, how many incidents do we know of, does science know of, does archeology span or anthropology know of where entire populations were wiped out by an infectious disease? Yeah, so that would be zero. Uh, so if there's zero evidence that entire populations were wiped out by infectious disease, not even a single incident of that in known history, so absent natural herd immunity? How have those outbreaks have ended? Medical anthropology has found evidence of smallpox in third century BC Egypt. And of course, we know that that was a, roughly the 31st dynasty that then rolled into reconquering Persia in the era of Alexander Great and on and on and on until today. So was it like third century BC vaccines that caused the smallpox outbreak to end? Hmm, or perhaps natural herd immunity. There are three components to how natural herd immunity works. The first is deaths. The second is natural immunity. And the third is to become infected and then recover, thus having antibodies. When I said deaths is part of natural herd immunity, you might have been surprised because you can read extensively on herd immunity anywhere and everywhere you want and never see deaths included in the discussion of herd immunity, but it is nevertheless a factor. Uh, the, the best way to look at it is the phrase culling the herd. I'm gonna share with you a definition of culling the herd. To separate or kill animals with inferior genetics, to remove those genetics from the gene pool of a population so that only the animals with desired genetics may live to procreate the next generation which has a superior gene. The process over time will make the population have, quote, better traits as a whole. To separate or kill animals with inferior genetics. Animals, like man. So men have been doing this for centuries with things like livestock to create exactly the kind of thing they wanted to ensure that the herds remain healthy. However, mother nature has always done that with humankind. Because there's no site that talks about death in terms of herd immunity, I wanna give you an example so you can better understand. Let's take a illustrative community of just 100 people. Now, of course, the concept of herd immunity, phrased one way, is that the virus has less places to go when the pool of susceptible hosts is smaller. And of course, when the virus has no more susceptible hosts, it's gone. In our illustrative community of 100 people, let's say that 50% are susceptible to the virus. And we're gonna get into natural immunity in a moment, so just run with me on this. 50% are susceptible to the virus. Obviously, 50% of 100 is 50 people. So if in the first couple months of the, the infectious outbreak, 
the virus or what have you kills 10% of that 50 people who are susceptible. Now, instead of having 50 susceptible people, you have 45 susceptible people, right? Again, the fewer susceptible people you have, that means the fewer available hosts for the virus and the closer you are to eradicating it. What is this thing, natural immunity? Well, natural immunity means for whatever physiological reason, there are various ones, a particular contagion does not impact the people who have natural immunity and the level of exposure is irrelevant. They can be exposed to it constantly and it, they just don't get it. Or the second part of natural immunity, the virus does get inside them, but their body defeats it so rapidly, they are asymptomatic. They never have a single symptom. They have a low viral load and they're not contagious. So whether we're talking about never gets it or gets it and their body immediately defeats it, either one of those is considered natural immunity. Even with something as virulent as smallpox, there were a lot of people, a huge percentage of the population that just never got small. As horrible as smallpox was, there was still this large population that had natural immunity to it. Then we have people who are minimally symptomatic, a term you've probably heard used in this, this whole SARS-CoV-2 episode. Um, an example of that would be, again, I'm gonna use smallpox, George Washington, in 1751, when he was traveling in Barbados, got smallpox, and he was minimally symptomatic. It caused a couple scars on his nose. That was it. The third operative element of naturally occurring herd immunity is people who have been infected and recovered and have the antibodies. Now, does, is there anybody here today in 2020, especially with the last several months of SARS-CoV-2 and so much in the news, and if you've been watching my videos, is there anybody who doesn't understand that when you recover from a contagion like this, you have antibodies which prevent you from getting it and hence prevent you from giving it. So I'm not gonna waste your time covering that very elementary ground today. However, I will put links to one or more videos down in the notes uh, to videos I've done on antibody responses generally and antibody responses to SARS-CoV-2. So to recap, we've discussed the three elements that operate as part of natural herd immunity. Deaths, natural immunity, and having gotten the infection recovered and having antibodies. Those three operate together as part of natural herd immunity. The upshot of those three elements comprising natural herd immunity is that when the herd immunity threshold in a population has been reached, it does what epidemiologists refer to as break the transmission chain. In other words, to put it simplistically, the virus has nowhere left to go and so the virus does not survive or at least it ceases to be a threat to that particular population base. As I said earlier, the position held by natural herd immunity deniers is not based on factor science, but they'll often throw stuff out to try and prove that herd, natural herd immunity doesn't exist. So the things that I've heard them throw out are smallpox, HIV, Ebola. All right, so let's talk about smallpox first. We've already discussed that, although there were no epidemiologists or biostatisticians or communicable disease experts hanging around in a place like the example I gave you, third century BC Egypt. We know that natural herd immunity eradicated it because 
it was eradicated. Now, it wasn't fully eradicated, and it has popped up around the world uh, numerous times since then and with some horrible consequences, but we know that Egyptian society carried on after they had the smallpox outbreak, so something stopped it. And in those days, again, 3rd century BC, uh, it was either natural herd immunity or I guess maybe in the minds of the deniers it was, I don't know, magic? HIV and Ebola. I'm going to handle those together. Um, first of all, so if you hear somebody offer those as evidence that natural herd immunity isn't really a thing, you know you're talking to somebody who is um, at best ill-informed and at worst not very bright because both HIV and Ebola are spread by rather intimate contact with internal body fluids. So it's not, it's not that their evidence that natural herd immunity isn't a thing, it's that the whole idea of natural herd immunity is inapplicable to viruses that spread only by relatively intimate contact involving internal bodily fluids. And there is no medical professional ever since you go back to the 19, early 1930s, late 1920s, where scientists observed the herd immunity phenomenon and said, wait, this is a real natural thing. This, this is actually a thing. From that day until right now, as, you're, as I'm speaking to you now, there is not a single medical professional who has ever even remotely suggested that herd immunity applies to viruses that are transmitted by relatively intimate contact involving internal body fluids. So again, it's not that there are evidence that natural herd immunity isn't a thing, it's evidence that they're not too bright. When we're talking about natural herd immunity or herd immunity by vaccine, doesn't matter either way, what is the magic number, that percentage at which we have achieved herd immunity? I don't know. And neither do you, <laughs> and neither do epidemiologists, neither do MDs, neither do infectious disease experts, and here's why. Until you have lived with a virus and watched its pattern and seen herd immunity develop in a given community, you don't know what the percentage is because the percentage of the population that needs to be infected for any particular virus is specific to that virus. So you might have a virus that needs 90%. For instance, that's a number often thrown around concerning measles. And then there have been researchers, I know people are going to scream and say, it's not credible. I'm just sharing with you what some researchers have said. There are some researchers who say that an infection rate in, in a particular community of as low as 25% could create herd immunity concerning SARS-CoV-2. I'm not saying those people are right. What I'm saying is, and this is, this is the scientific fact, what I was just sharing was just somebody's, some researcher's opinion. This is scientific fact, and that is, I don't know for SARS-CoV-2 what that threshold is, and no one else on the planet knows, including the people who will tell you, oh, we can't get to natural herd immunity because you have to have this particular percentage. When you hear somebody say that, you know you're talking to a bonehead. If there had to be a viral outbreak and you could write the formula for that virus that would make it the poster child for reaching natural herd immunity, how would you structure that virus? Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. You would make it highly infectious and highly asymptomatic, which brings the death toll down, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Coincidentally, SARS-CoV-2 is highly infectious and highly asymptomatic, making it the poster child for natural herd immunity. If we want to take a gander at our current situation with SARS-CoV-2, 
right now, as things stand in this country, if we look at the number of people who have died within the entire population, not just the much smaller infected group, but we take the entire 322 million people who live in the United States, and then we find the percentage of people who have died from COVID-19 within that population base. Right now, we are at 0.05%, or five one-hundredths of 1%. But if you desire to look at the death toll from COVID-19 within the construct of how many people have been infected, you have to do a lot of speculation there because, of course, we don't know how many people are infected. When we look at government numbers, that's just test results. That doesn't tell us how many people have never been tested and have at some point had the virus or have it now. Those, those numbers don't tell us that. So as I'm sitting here talking to you today, the number of confirmed cases from, I'd like to say PCR testing, but I'm sure there's some just by signs and symptoms type observation by doctors. But the number that's out there is 7 million people in the United States have been confirmed to have the virus. So we're gonna run with that number. Now, we don't know how many people are really infected, right? Because that's just a government testing number or a government diagnostic number. So if we were to multiply 7 million times a factor of 25, which I think is uh, pretty conservative, that would mean the United States is already at 43% infection rate. So if we accept that, that 43% as the infection pool, that would make the mortality rate 0.1% or one-tenth of 1% of the entire population that is thought to be infected, or at some point was. If we take that 7 million number and use a factor of 35, which I think is a bit more realistic, we end up with... 76% of the United States population having been or being infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That a natural herd immunity number? Again, going back to what we discussed earlier, we don't know, but it's sure, it should be hard to argue against that if we accept the factor of 35. Now, if we do accept the factor of 35, which would mean 76% of the U.S. population has at some point had the SARS-CoV-2 virus inside them, that would make the mortality rate from the infection pool 0.07% or 7 one-hundredths of 1%. So why did I just run through that exercise? Well, here's why. Whether it's 43% of the U.S. population or 67% of the U.S. population, those are the numbers, depending on which model you like, or you make up your own model, those are the numbers of people who've been infected. Whatever number you want to choose, whether we're talking about somewhere in the range of 150 million people infected or we're talking about 240 million people infected, whatever that number is, then you take the number of Americans that have died from that. The remaining number, so whatever number you use is the total infection pool. You subtract the number of people in the U.S. who've died. What remains, the remainder, they have antibodies. They're not infectious. They can't get it. They can't give it. So you can run those numbers and determine for yourself. Is that not natural herd immunity levels? If you've been following me for any length of time, you know I'm a big fan of graphs and charts. So what we can see with our own eyes, we can either look at anecdotes, which I don't think are meaningful, or we can look at graphs or charts that display data, which I do think is meaningful. If we want to examine 
what we can actually see with our own eyes concerning natural herd immunity. Let's look at a couple graphs. This is Arizona, and this pyramid you're looking at is what I have long referred to as the herd immunity pyramid. You have to have the red line to get to the blue line. And clearly, Arizona is in herd immunity. And I think the important thing about Arizona being in herd immunity, at least as far as the uh, natural herd immunity deniers are concerned, is Arizona did not have a statewide mask order. There was no enforcement of social distancing. I mean, nobody called the cops. The cops didn't come out and cite you, arrest you if you were standing you know, four feet from somebody rather than six feet. And of course, no vaccine. This next graph is of Texas. And again, you see the herd immunity pyramid. And Texas, again, had no statewide mask order. There's no enforcement of social distancing and no vaccine, of course. Here we have Florida. Again, the herd immunity pyramid. You gotta have the red line to get to the blue line. And just like the previous two states, no statewide mask order, no enforcement of social distancing, and no vaccine. I do want to make one point over here. You see this right here? Okay, so this is what I have dubbed the anomalous spike. And it has occurred in countries and states of the union time and again. And every time the media sees like the one day or two day spike, they say, oh my God, that's a hot spot. No, it's an anomalous spike. So media, shut up if you don't know what you're talking about. Here we have the nation of Brazil. And again, the herd immunity pyramid, you've gotta have the red line to get to the blue line. Uh, there was no nationwide mask order. There was no, like, since it's a foreign country, there was no like police enforcement of social distancing. I bring up social distancing enforcement by police because in some nations in Europe, that's how they did it. And of course, there's no vaccine. So this herd immunity pyramid you see in Brazil was not the result of a non-existent vaccine. And here we have Sweden, the very first jurisdiction on the planet to hit herd immunity. And here you see the traditional herd immunity pyramid. Now, I want to point something out here. Oh, by the way, yeah, they had no mask orders and they had no social distancing enforcement and no vaccine. My friends that live there tell me some people social distanced and some people didn't. So there you go. I want to draw your attention to this smaller herd immunity pyramid right here. I discussed this about two or three weeks in another video, and at that time I predicted that we would see a yet smaller, a tiny herd immunity pyramid following this smaller one. And there we have it. And I explained at that time, that's because that is how natural herd immunity works. You have these little bounces as it's moving towards zero. So, natural herd immunity deniers what the dickens is happening in those states and countries that they, their cases spiked up and then spiked down and they're pretty close to zero now? Insert kooky non-scientific response here. So we've looked at some states of the union. Where is the United States as a nation? Well, looky here. As a nation, we are already in herd immunity because there you have the traditional, you gotta have the red line to get to the blue line herd immunity pyramid. Now, you'll see this little thing where it starts to arc up again over here. Guess what that is? Yeah, the same thing as Sweden. It's just a little bump and it'll, it'll be a smaller, a far smaller pyramid than the one you're looking at here. You may be wondering why the blue line is a bit more shallow than places like Sweden. 
That's because America's a big nation. We've got a lot of rural states. And so as soon as the rural states catch up, because they were late to the infection party, then we'll see this drop down to virtually zero. With all this said, can anybody prove natural herd immunity exists? Prove it! Which is the argument made by the natural herd immunity deniers. Well, no, you can't because you can observe it. You can measure it. You can look at the type of data we've just looked at, and common sense tells you what's going on. But you can't replicate it in a laboratory, which in scientific terms is the, the hardcore standard for proof. Let me give you an analogy that explains how these hardcore natural herd immunity deniers try and wiggle out of all the facts and data we've discussed here today. Let's use a murder investigation to highlight what I'm talking about. So let's say there's a guy and he has a, an apartment and his name is Franklin. And the cops get a call from Franklin's housekeeper who says, I have a key to Franklin's house. I went in there to clean the house today. He was supposed to be at the office and I found him dead in the hallway. Can you please come over here? So the cops show up and they find him dead in the hallway. He's got two bullet holes in his chest. And the forensics team comes in and as they're gathering evidence, they discover that Franklin has placed high definition cameras throughout the apartment and they all go back to a central recording device. So the cops pull the recordings and they look at the video recordings. So what they see is that Franklin's at home and then he goes to the front door and somebody's there. So this stranger comes in and he and Franklin begin to get in was clearly obvious from the video, a some sort of an altercation, some sort of an argument. And Franklin at one point turns away and walks towards the hallway, the hallway being the only place in the entire residence that does not have a camera. So then we see the unknown individual follow Franklin towards the hallway just as the, per the stranger is about to go out of camera frame. We see him reach down, raise his shirt, and stick his hand down in this region, and then he disappears into the hallway. Then within seconds, within one and a half to two and a half seconds, we hear bang, bang. And then we see the stranger come out and the cameras catch him. He's got a gun in his hand and you might not know the model, but certainly clearly you can identify the make. So he runs out and he runs down the hallway towards the elevator and a couple of neighbors open the door and peek out because they heard the sound. And so when the police come and conduct their investigation, they go and they door knock as they do. And one of the neighbors, uh, they're trying to find out who that stranger was. And one of the neighbors says, yeah, I know. I was introduced to him a while back. That's Eric Franklin's business partner. Boom, right? Okay, so the cops get a warrant for Eric's place. They serve the warrant. Eric is no place to be found, but they recover a firearm. And so they run a ballistics check and they find out, yes, this firearm is the firearm that put the two rounds in Franklin. Okay, so we've got this video evidence. We've got the, the uh, stranger coming into Franklin's apartment, a, a heated argument taking place, Franklin walking away into the only area that doesn't have a camera, the stranger following him in, reaching in a way that appears that could be reaching for a weapon, and just seconds later, bang, bang, you can't see what's happening, but you hear the gunshots, and then the stranger, who we now know is Eric, runs out. You see him on camera running across the living room. He's got the gun in his hand. He bursts out the front door. Neighbors see him, identify him as Eric. And when they serve the warrant, they come up with the gun and ballistics show that that gun fired the rounds that killed Franklin. Okay. Now, doesn't matter where you are on the planet. <laughs> Eric is getting convicted of murder. Except in the mines, if we 
compare this analogy to natural herd immunity, except in the minds of natural herd immunity deniers who would say, we can't say he's guilty because we didn't see what happened in the hallway. Okay, so that's the, given all the science, all the evidence, all the anthropology, uh, all the medical reality, the, the original observations back in the late 20s and early 30s, that this is a naturally occurring phenomenon, all of that notwithstanding, they will say, you can't prove it, so it's not real. Okay, so yeah, and you didn't know that Eric shot Franklin in the hallway. As I said at the outset, this isn't going to change the mind of any hardcore natural herd immunity deniers. Uh, this tutorial, the reason to lay this all out is because there are people who are, um, with the best of intentions, they're misinformed. Probably misinformed by the hardcore natural herd immunity deniers. Unlike the hardcore natural herd immunity deniers, these people can be reached. So the purpose of this tutorial was to help you reach those people.